Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, Project Recover has done it again. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to the chief historian of the nonprofit group about their recent discovery of three American bomber planes from World War II found in a lagoon in the Pacific. What's the history of these planes? And what happens next with the remains? We'll tell you all about it. And in light of MyHeritage.com's recent breakthrough with colorizing your photographs, photo detective Maureen Taylor talks about the history of colored photographs. You'll catch all this and more this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you have found us, America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. And welcome to it. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. A loaded show today. We're going to be talking to Colin Colborn. He is the chief historian for a group called Project Recover. And we met him last June as they had identified uh, a bomber that had crashed in World War II and they were able to ultimately get the remains recovered from the crew members. Well, guess what? They have found three more bombing planes in what's called the Island of Truk in the Pacific Ocean. Goes back to 1944. You're going to want to hear the story behind these planes, how Colin and Project Recover found these planes, and what's going to happen moving forward. It's going to be a fascinating story from World War II. Then later in the show, Maureen Taylor is back. She is the photo detective. Of course, everybody's talking about the colorized photos now due to that uh, new feature with MyHeritage.com. She's going to talk about the history of colorized photographs, and they actually go back a little further than you think. And again this week, we'll be talking to Dr. Henry Louis Gates from the PBS series Finding Your Roots about his most recent episode, one you can catch and stream. That'll be later on in the show. And of course, we'll do another segment of Ask Us Anything with David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And here he is right now. How are you, David? Well, your Roots reporter has some rather sad news to report. As America and the world looks forward to the commemoration of the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower, vandalism has struck in Plymouth. This yeah. is terrible, terrible news. Somebody has spray-painted Plymouth Rock, as well as vandalizing the National Monument to the Forefathers, and the Pilgrim Maiden statue, which is a bronze statue that stands almost across the street from Plymouth Rock, all spray-painted in red, some with vulgarity, some of it with the tag of the person who did it. It's just horrible news. But I think the 35 million descendants of those that survived the first winter at Plymouth probably would want to know. And I bet a lot of yep. people do know this, but it's important news. Yeah, as one of them, it just makes you sick. And, and the work that's going to have to go into cleaning up Plymouth Rock. And I will say this, Plymouth Rock, I've only been there once. <laughs> it's not much, is it, David? No, but it's one of those things in American history. We yep. look at it as a symbol. and you know, it's, it's iconic. It is absolutely yeah. iconic where the Pilgrims first stepped foot on North American soil. Well, hopefully they can uh, figure out some way to clean it up and not have it permanently marred. I think that they have some chemicals that they've been using uh, from the get-go on this one. It was discovered, and I think the cleanup is going quite well. Good. Well, I want to share a fun poor relations story. My grandmother's family is the poor family, and Henry Poor, my third great-grandfather, 
I just started to go into those some of our newspaper databases online, and on newspapers.com, I found something. And a Fall River newspaper for him. Henry Poor of 58 Elliott Street, Boston, and others recommend this liniment for rheumatism. And this is in 1837. So I have found medical history in the newspaper 183 years ago wow. that I didn't know. So all my cousins who have rheumatoid arthritis, I can say, I know where it comes from now. It came right down that line. That's unbelievable. Well, and I thought I was going to stop there, that I found that good old Henry was a Democrat rallying on Boylston Street in Boston in about 1835. Boylston Street's a block away from where I work. Oh, wow. That's crazy. (laughs) Well, speaking of great finds, back in 1958, a boy walking along a railroad track found a box, and in it, he found something, looked like a hand-drawn flag, stuffed it in his shirt. And it was sold for a couple of thousand dollars. Well, this flag had a little bit more historical significance than what he thought. It was a campaign support flag for Thomas Jefferson after he beat Adams in 1800. (laughs) Yeah, and it's now at the Smithsonian. And imagine these two kids. uh, I think one was like 14, the other was 11. They're in their (laughs) 70s right now, and the Smithsonian wanted to verify the story of how this thing was found. And the only thing they can think of is that there was a road that went by these railroad tracks in Massachusetts, by the way, your home state Mm -hmm. there, David. And they think maybe this box fell off a car or out of the back of a truck or something as they were maybe moving someplace. So there was the box. These guys found it, and this one kid thought it was a pretty cool-looking thing, stuffed it in his shirt. And at his home, he hung it up on his wall with a couple of thumbtacks. That's great. You know, you just never know what you're going to find. An 11-year-old walking along a river in Virginia, he found what he thought was a rock shaped like a gun. Actually, it was a gun, a 130-year-old gun that probably someone tossed in the river, maybe from a crime, maybe it was lost. But it's interesting what you can find. Yeah. This kid dropped this thing. He he thought it was a rock that was shaped (laughs) like a gun. He dropped it, and the rock broke off, and it's like, oh. And uh, they're, they're figuring it goes back to the 1880s or 90s. Unbelievable. Yeah, a little revolver. It's a great story on ExtremeGenes.com. Well, that's about all I have from this week. All right, David. Excellent. And we'll talk to you at the back end of the show as we do another Ask Us Anything segment. Very good. Well, I think it was last June that I first made the acquaintance of my next guest on Extreme Genes with an organization called the Bent Prop Project. And since that time, uh, the project has changed its name. It's now called Project Recover. But uh, Colin Colborn, who we had on back then, the chief historian for the organization, has been very active lately, and they've made an amazing find in the Pacific Ocean recently. And we had to get Colin back on the phone to talk about this, how they found them, what the planes are, what the history of the planes are, what's coming up now for recovery of the remains of these airmen. It's an amazing thing. And uh, Colin, welcome back to Extreme Genes. Well, thanks for having me again, Scott. It is wonderful to be back on, and uh, I'm happy we have some good news to report. Boy, you do. And I remember I I ran across the story and immediately thought, oh, my gosh, Colin's done it again. So this took place uh, in, in a lagoon, as I understand, in the Pacific. What was the battle that these three bomber planes were engaged in? Yes, sir. So today, the country is called the Federated States of Micronesia, and one of those states is called Chuuk, that's C-H-U-U-K. Okay. Uh, but in World War II, we actually called it Truck Lagoon, T-R-U-K, Truck mm-hmm. Lagoon. Yes. 
They called it the Gibraltar of the Pacific. In other words, a very heavily fortified Japanese base. It had three fully serviceable airfields and multiple deep water harbors where the Japanese uh, battle fleet and merchant fleet operated out of throughout the Pacific. I had an uncle who was uh, and, actually in a battle for Truk back in the day, and I'm very oh, familiar with it. Oh, no, he, it was, he was in the Navy, and he was with one of the heavy cruisers that did their work protecting the aircraft carriers at the time, and this was one of his battles, and it's an amazing thing to think that this is part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So in 1944, the U.S. organized five heavy fleet carriers and, and four light carriers. It's an organization called Task Force 58 a big U.S. aircraft carrier task force, and they have a lot of planes, and they're going on a mission to basically disrupt the Japanese and all of their bases in the Marshalls, Gilberts, and then Caroline Islands. And in uh, February 1944, uh, 17 to 18 February local time, this uh, carrier task force launched all its aircraft against Truck Lagoon, fully expecting there to be a huge fight. Again, there were three fully serviceable airfields, including two seaplane bases, and so they knew they were going to get into something. That morning, they launched several waves of attack aircraft and cleared it out. It was a pitched battle for two days. However, the U.S. had already overflown that lagoon earlier that February, and so the Japanese cleared out their big battle fleet. But there was still a big air war, and, and uh, a lot of merchant ships still left in the lagoon. So U.S. planes sank, I think, up to 50 of those ships over the two days. Wow. And over the course of that battle, they lost, we know now, almost 30 aircraft, including operational and combat incidents. But we know now that 12 of those aircraft, we believe, are in the lagoon itself still today. And uh, Wow. Unfortunately, we found three of them. Isn't that something? I mean, it just must be something where you go to bed at night with a smile on your face thinking that sometime soon these guys are going to have their remains back where they belong here in the United States with their family. It really feels good. And to be honest, Scott, I've been to Chook now four times in the last two years. I spent a good amount of my time there and getting to know the people and really understanding the geography and the battlefield. It's just really great. You invest your time. You know, I'll never forget any of the names of these guys uh, that have went missing there. And uh, yeah, exactly. To be able to know that... Hopefully, we'll be able to bring some of these guys back home and bury them with their families. is really incredible. So let's talk about Project Recover a little bit now. How do you guys go about doing this work? You're the chief historian, and obviously there has to be an understanding of what's there in the first place so that you know what you're looking for. Yeah, and we're a global operation. So the way we go about it is we try to choose areas that we're going to put a lot of time and effort to search where there are multiple aircraft there so that we have a, a good high probability you know, that we might be able to find some aircraft. And we've been successful in the past. The last time we talked about a B-24 that we found in um, Hansa Bay in Papua New Guinea. Yep. And we've, of course, had a lot of success in Palau with the Bed Prop Project over the years. And so Truck Lagoon really stuck out as a place where we knew this operation happened, but also several other operations happened there, and it was a bypassed island, so American troops never went there. So we sent airplanes to bomb it for the entire war, and as a result, you know, there are a lot of aircraft there, and so this is how we sort of prioritize down to an area where we might have a high probability of finding something. Boy, that's just astounding. So how long were you working at Truk, and is it an atoll or an island? It's a group of islands within a large fringing coral reef. 
Okay. So it's kind of almost triangular in shape, but it's 2,000 square kilometers. It's a very big lagoon. Uh, And they have large islands that are mountainous on the interior, as well as some that the Japanese had cleared off entirely and made into big, flat, operating, you know, we called them island carriers. They literally just dug them down to make them basically flat runways. And so it's a very interesting place and and very reflective of of the Japanese uh, base building in World War II. So when did you start working on truck? Yes, sir. So I I started working in truck in January of 2018. And, you know, we sent a couple, uh, an anthropologist and myself, to go out and just to talk to people, basically just to test the water and see, you know, was there a lot of plane scrapping? You know, is it possible that we could still find airplanes there? And we have found that it was a very protected place and that there was some opportunity. And so I've been going there since January of 2018. I've been back four times. And our dedicated searches uh, with underwater sonar started in April of 2018. Wow. So do some of these natives, do they have uh, stories that have been passed down from family or even some of the older ones actually remember it firsthand? When we first got there, we were told that it was highly unlikely, of course, that there were still going to be survivors. I mean, even in the United States today, finding World War II veterans is not an easy task. And yet, when we actually got over to some of the islands with some amazing local experts, we found people who were witnesses to these tragedies, but also the human experience of the war. And we got to talk to some people as old as 95 years old there. Oh, wow. Um, who really had a lot of great stories to tell us, both about the attack and also about the executions that happened of American prisoners of war by the Japanese uh, throughout the war. Have any of those remains ever been found? Uh, unfortunately, no, no remains have been found yet for those executions. And we still have a dedicated search. The Japanese, after the war, were brought up on war crimes charges. And as a result, investigations were launched. But the Japanese said that all the remains had been dug up and cremated or dropped out to sea. You know, we still hold out hope that some of those remains in some areas, and we have some pretty good leads, could still be there. And so, Chuk very much for us is a two-pronged search. It's both in the sea, you know, inside the lagoon to find airplanes with MIAs, but also hopefully executed POWs on land as well. Wow. And this is just all in keeping with the idea that our military never forgets, and they're still looking. I mean, they're still dealing with World War I victims, are they not? Uh, absolutely. Uh, not long ago, they had some World War One victims, and of course, the submarine, the Hunley from the Civil War, even yep. was, was found. And and our primary focus for Project Recover is World War Two, Vietnam, the Cold War, all the way up through the Gulf War. You know, for us, sonar is our expertise with University of Delaware and Scripps Institution of Oceanography. With both of those groups, our best capabilities are underwater sonar. And a lot of people say, why do you care about the planes? And the answer is, we don't care about the planes. It's the guys on the inside. But the planes are the grave markers, if you will. Right, What helps us find them. And so that's really our focus. So you found these three bombers. Are you expecting that you're going to continue to look for the other? You, You said, I think there were 12 in that lagoon. Are there nine others you're still looking for? There are nine others just from that strike alone. There are a grand total, we believe, inside the lagoon of 33 aircraft, 30 now remaining with uh, the three that we just found. Wow, that's got to be a big lagoon, though, for all those to be there, and you've only found three. 
it's a large lagoon. And, you know, for us, the historical loss information is not always accurate. You know, we have B-24s that were supposedly lost on bombing raids. And in many cases, they say they were hit over the target, but we don't really know where they crashed. And so we have to sort of make a judgment on, do we think this is in the lagoon? How would we go about searching for this? But like I said, there were strikes on that lagoon from February 1944 all the way through August 1945. And uh, that included not just carrier aircraft, but B-24s, B-29s, American fighter aircraft with rockets. And even the British conducted an airstrike on truck as well. Wow. So is there a way for uh, anybody to be involved in your organization, or are you looking for people with certain roles? How's that work? Well, we are looking for people with certain roles, but we are also always looking for volunteers. And you know, certainly, I, I, you know, in, on my history team, I could always use volunteers. I really encourage people to go to projectrecovered.org and um, look there to about how to apply and sign up to become a volunteer because we could use the help and we invite the help because we're a small organization that relies on fundraising and we could use all the help we can get. We're very fortunate, but we could use the help. How many people are in your group? In Project Recover, if you include the people that work with the universities and with the nonprofit, I would say we have upwards of 50 people all together that are actively working throughout the year on our projects. Wow. Well, congrats to you all, because this is a, a team effort, no doubt. And there's more news to come from this when the remains are recovered and brought back home. Congratulations, and we look forward to hearing more success out of Project Recover. Thanks, Colin. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. He's Colin Colborn. He's the chief historian for Project Recover. And, of course, you can find out more at projectrecover.org. Very thrilled to have my good friend Maureen Taylor, the photo detective, back on the show this week. And, uh, Maureen, this, this is a big week. I mean, everybody's buzzing photographs right now because of the colorization, I guess you'd call it an app, that they provided on MyHeritage. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. And yes, my social media feed is full of <laughs> colored photographs now from the MyHeritage in color trademark technology. It's pretty amazing. It's created by Jason Antic and Dana Kelly, who are, according to MyHeritage, deep learning experts. I don't know about you, but this is high math when you start talking about colorizing black and white photographs automatically using machine learning algorithms. Right. That means <laughs> the machine learns. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets better over time, theoretically, anyway. And I did right. notice, I mean, this is the colorization is not perfect, but when you consider how much it costs typically to colorize a single photograph, I mean, back in the 1980s, we found that in a peach basket in one of uh, Julie's, my wife's uh, relative's, homes in the garage, there was a photo of her great-grandparents with the family from the 19-teens. It was damaged, and we hired somebody to go through and fix it. Now, they did it by taking a picture of the picture and then basically doing some artwork on it and then taking a picture of that picture and providing it to us. It was like 150 bucks. And now, of course, with Photoshop, many of us can do much the same thing for just the cost of having Photoshop. And now we can colorize these things. And in my experience with it, I've done hundreds of these photos now through my heritage just to get a taste of it. It looks like most of them come out pretty good. I'd say 70, 80 percent. And, and then there are some, though, that seem to have a little trouble between blue and purple and red. Did you notice that? Yes. There, I have a few things to say about this. Okay. One, 
I think this is a great tool yep. because it makes people look at their photographs like they haven't seen them before. Yes. So they notice new details. Now, given that this is a machine algorithm and we assume it's going to get smarter the more it does, we'll have to see where it goes. I noticed that there were some problems with hands and skin tones. Yes. Plus the palette is rather limited so that when you go to a person who does something to colorize a black and white photograph and you go to a professional colorist like Claudia D'Souza, who I interviewed for my podcast, The Photo Detective, about a month ago, she's in the UK and she brings a whole nother level of colorization to images. So she does the research to find out what colors were popular that someone might have worn in that time period and even what that might have looked like in a photograph. So while the algorithm paints this general sense of what colors might have been worn, is it historically accurate? Mm, some. Right. Maybe yeah. not. Mm-hmm. But if it makes you look at your photographs in a new way, which is what I'm always telling people to do. It's like it's hard to get that image out of your mind when you've looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. If this gives you that fresh eye, wow, that's great. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what I felt. You described it dead on because I created a folder of all these new colorized pictures. I wanted to keep them separate from the originals. And that first day, (laughs) it was like just gorging on this, this thing. And it was like midnight, and I said, okay, i got to go back and look and see what I've done. And I opened up that folder, and I started just clicking from one to the next and the next, and I'm just gasping, and the emotion that I felt from it, because I'm looking at them, just as you said, in a whole new way that I had never done before because of this. Were they perfect? Of course not. And do we know that the colors are, are perfectly accurate, especially from the 19th century? Probably not. but And there's some you, you can actually go through and fix yourself a little bit with Adobe Elements. Yeah. And, and there's some that you would need a more expert level person to do this with. But MyHeritage says they've already had one million photographs colorized on their site. I'm just amazed that they didn't get the site crashed. Well, I interviewed Daniel Horowitz a few weeks ago, and he told me this was coming. And, of course, I couldn't say anything. Right. The episode I recorded with him will, will drop soon. But he told me about it, and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what this is a mean? big deal. This is a big thing. This is the future of it. I'm assuming it will get even better. Mm-hmm. And colorizing images has been around since the beginning of photography. Yeah, tell so, us some of the history of that. So when you sat for a daguerreotype, it was pretty much black and white, but I love daguerreotypes. They almost have a 3D quality sure, to them. Sure, they do. But you're black and white, and you, so you don't really look real. So early on, there were techniques developed to colorize images, and individuals were hired to do that. That was their job, primarily women. And they used artist materials. So depending on the type of photograph, it could be gold leaf, it could be pink, it could be red. Some really expensive daguerreotypes were completely colored so that they almost look like a painting. Yeah. You know, they almost look like a painting. And then later on, there were colorized images like crayon portraits, and they used pastels and charcoal and pencil and, you know, paint. There were all different artist materials that have been used over the years to colorize images. And a lot of them were at the time the picture was made, or the crayon portraits were copies of older photos, and then they had them colorized. This is a long history of turning black and white images into color. There was a real art to it at the time. There is a real art. Now, 
there are some that are not very good. Yeah. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, with blots of color or the wrong shade, like brilliant green grass. And actually, when my daughter was into arts and crafts, you know, her friends would come over and they had a printer that would do really nice black and white images. And I bought a colorizing kit. You could buy a colorizing kit at an art supply store. I think you still can. And then you can practice your colorizing on actual prints. Huh. Not don't do it to your old ones. Just do it to copies. Right, to but the copies. <laughs> you, you, can, you can play with it and colorize and, and get a sense of what's involved, especially I wanted a sense of what was involved in the 19th century for that. But this, this you upload an image and it's done in seconds. They said up to 30 seconds. Yeah. I, I don't think any of mine have taken 30 seconds. Uh-uh. I, I think they've been more like 20. And I guess by the time you go to click through and, and figure out, oh, I'm going to do this one this time, maybe it's 30. So you can do just reasonably two a minute with this thing. And most of them come out pretty darn good. It's just, it's so impressive. Did you find yourself gasping when you saw some of the results? Yes. So I tested it with some of the images that I collect for research. And one of them was this spectacular photograph from the late 1920s. And she's got that skull cap on, you know, the cloche hat. Yeah. And a really bold patterned fabric. And she's got like chrysanthemums in the foreground. And I really wanted to see what would it do with it. Well, it came out mostly red and pink. And in the period, it might have been red and pink. It could have been purple. You know, what colors are chrysanthemums? It could have been a yellow, even, some of it. But I did, when that was done, I did gasp at it. It changed the whole impression of the photograph. Yeah, and and there are many of them. I had a historical photo of New York City in 1864, Mm -hmm. and I colorized it just to see what it would do with it, and... That one caused me to gasp because all of a sudden the buildings are brown, the sky is blue, the horses are brown, the uh, taxi cabs along the road were black, and yet you still have the feel of it being an old photo because, for instance, as the horses moved as the photo was being taken, that they kind of became ghostly. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Just not yes. fast enough at that time. But it was amazing to look at that. Anyway, great catching up with you, Maureen, and getting your impression on it. I'm excited to hear so many other people are excited about it. I think this opens a, a whole new way of exploring our family history through photographs. And thanks once again for coming on. Thank you. I love talking about pictures anytime. All right. And coming up next, Dr. Henry Louis Gates is back talking about his latest episode on PBS's Finding Your Roots. Dr. Gates, what do you got going for us this week? This week is called Italian Roots, and it features three guests of partial Italian descent, Jimmy Kimmel, Marissa Tomei, and the actor John Tutoro. And the DNA results are so fascinating. You know Jimmy Kimmel, everybody, you know, you see him late night on ABC. Jimmy's paternal roots are German, but his mother's side is all Italian. And we were able to trace Jimmy back to his ninth great-grandfather, Johann Kummel, born around 1608 in Witzerode, Germany. Shakespeare was alive, man. Shakespeare didn't die till 1616. (laughs) That's a good line. That's a good run. Good job. (laughs) And on his mama's side, back to his eighth great-grandfather, Giorgio Sarno born around 1685 in Avellino, Italy. Now, despite that long paper trail, his admixture breaks down 87% European. Now, that includes 40% Ireland, 29% Italy and Greece, 5% Scandinavia, 
4% Ashkenazi Jewish, as well, Scott, as 11% West Asian and 2% Sub-Saharan African. Really? And, yeah, and 2% Sub-Saharan African is a lot. You know, believe me, people claiming Native American descent, if they could get 2%, they would go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so that means that back, what, third or fourth great-grandparents, perhaps, could be a, a person who was all black, as we would say in, sure. in this society. That's astonishing. Now, where would that come from? Well, before I answer that question, let me tell you about John Totoro. John Totoro is Italian. His mother is a child of Sicilian immigrants. John's admixture, 93% European, 71% Italian, 2% Balkan, 16% broadly Southern European, which makes sense. But he's 5.4% Middle Eastern and North African and 1.2% Sub-Saharan. Wow, there it so is again. There it is again. And as you know from watching the series, there are very few quote-unquote white people who are in the series who have any Sub-Saharan African. Now, just reminding our audience that all of our ancestors 50,000 years ago were walking around East Africa, probably around Ethiopia. Right. So we're all African. But you can't measure that DNA percentage back 50,000 years, not through the standard commercial test. Right. It only measures back at 500 years, about the time of the family trees that we were able to uncover. So where did this black or sub-Saharan African ancestry come from? Italy. Italy was a crossroads. Italy's on the Mediterranean. In fact, you could think of Italy as Europe's gateway Africa in the same way the Strait of Gibraltar is, right? Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. So there were there's a lot of trade, a lot of commerce back and forth going back thousands of years. So we have no idea who John's black ancestor on his family tree was or Jimmy's, but they're there because as the brothers on the street say, DNA doesn't lie. That's right. And, <laughs> and as you know, one of my favorite revelations is DNA cousins. Jimmy Kimmel's DNA cousin is Martha Stewart. Marissa Tomei's cousin is my dear friend, Julianne Moore. And the biggest surprise of all is that John Totoro has as his DNA cousin none other than Brian Gumble himself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's interesting and unique. Well, of course, the it show is. is on PBS Tuesday nights. You want to check your local listings to get the time right. Dr. Gates, great to talk to you as always, and we'll catch you again next week. It's great to talk to you, Gene, man. Keep up the great work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. As we do another round of Ask Us Anything. And, uh, David, uh, the question this week comes from Mary Ashbaker. She is in Vancouver, Washington, and she has uh, an interesting little ditty here. She says, my grandfather remarried a younger woman in 1933 and had a second family while in his late 50s and into his 60s. I grew up hearing that because of his older age, he was denied work in many private companies as well as government-funded work projects because of his age, even though he was raising a family of three young boys. My question is twofold. One, is it true that it was much more difficult for an older man to find work at that time than a younger one? And two, is it known if older men sometimes altered their birth year in order to appear young enough to qualify for a job? So we're talking about, of course, during the Depression. And then she says, I am currently researching a person, not my grandfather, 
who I think may have done this. He disappears from all records after the 1920 census, but reappears maybe in a neighboring state with the same name, birthday, month, and location, but a birth year that made him three years younger. Occupation is also a match. This version of him keeps the younger birth year consistently from that point on until his death in 1963, but doesn't seem to exist before then when the three years older version disappeared. Mary Ashbaker. So, uh, David, first of all, I think she certainly got her person there. Oh, I would think you're right on the money on that. I mean, that was common. I mean, think of how hard work was in general. If they thought that you weren't going to be fit enough to keep up with the other workers, depending what industry it was in, uh, they may opt to take a 25-year-old, say, if somebody who's like in his late 40s or 50s. Yeah, because most of the jobs during the Depression were very physical. So it made Mm -hmm. sense. And, And, you know, really, there were lots of reasons for people to uh, alter their age or make themselves look younger in the records. We see that especially with women throughout the years, right? Uh, Even more so than men. But I think during the Depression, it makes perfect sense. It does. And like I say, if you can keep a timeline of when you see this age and different records that he has, and of course, I think what the red flag that goes up here is that the other one disappears, another one reappears, and that's consistent for the rest of his life. I think that that's almost a closed case on this one. uh, Totally. If the uh, younger version has no record before 1920, and then the older version has no record after 1920, you've got your person, and all these other things match up. And I know that uh, in the past, I've often looked at things and go, really? Could that really be? But, I mean, it all fits together, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, and after last year when I turned 50, I decided Jack Benny's idea of being 39 eternally works. So all my <laughs> records from now, including my new federally recognized state ID, now has my birth year a little younger. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Good luck, by the way, in tracking down pictures and employment records from the 40s with uh, with his former <laughs> company. That would be something. I've never heard of anybody actually achieving that. Have you? Uh, the only way you can find them is accidentally when, see if it's a company that's been around for a long time, sometimes the older records with newer ones get mixed in with donations to local historical societies where the business was, or better yet, do the uh, idea of tracing the owners of the company. Contact the descendant. By the way, in your garage, do you have any of the old employment records? Well, great question. And, of course, if you ever have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thanks so much. Talk to you again next week. Talk to you later, my friend. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.